This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. Climate change has brought now the changing um, because that has you know we we are not sure. It's not about the actual availability of water or scarcity of water. It's also uncertainty over the water supply. What will happen? Uh, what is going to happen if there is a long-term drought period? Whether we will have that water available? Uh, for you know how the allocation will be made, or if the agreements have been signed before, because those are only for. For short term, if there is a one year or two year bad year, but if it becomes longer as climate change projects, then we'll have a problem. Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I'll be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment? And what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ashok Swain who is a professor and head of the Department of Peace and Conflict Research. He is also the UNESCO Chair on International Water Cooperation and the Director of Research School of International Water Cooperation at Uppsala University in Sweden. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Swain. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. So your background is really in in water and water security and these type of topics, and including the climate. And you've been published a number of times and have worked with a number of international organizations from NATO to OSCE to United Nations and many others. And one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the podcast is really to talk about this, you know, our focus area, of course, being crisis, conflict, emergency management, but focus on this nexus of, in your case, the resource of water and how that could possibly drive instability and drive towards conflict. Now, as we all know, the current conflict in Ukraine is happening as we speak, and there's been the issues of water that have come up in terms of destroying dams, flooding regions north of Kiev, and preventing military maneuvers, and then also water possibly driving instability coming out of Crimea, and the lack of water, I should say, uh, driving instability. And so before we start getting into all these different topics, maybe just a bit of background and how you got started in this field and what is your sort of view on water security or should we say insecurity these days? Yep. I I, uh, I did my PhD in India and then in the early 90s, I came to Sweden for the, my postdoctoral research. And that is the time when the world uh, was power politics had changing or that time the Cold War in Europe had come to an end. So there were new security threats we are looking at because I, I was I was trained in a hard security accounting military uh, security of different countries. And then I postdoctoral level, I looked at, uh, or at, at least I thought I would change my area to water, instability, migration, those kind of issues. Uh, and that, that time I started first working on the Ganges uh, River water sharing. I mean, I didn't start looking at Ganges when I was in India, but I came to Sweden and went to look at the Ganges and how it's creating uh, instability and difficulty, economic difficulty in Bangladesh and uh, forcing people to be displaced and also some of them moving to India as well. And that is creating another political instability in India. So it's a, it's a very uh, connected, um, of course, politically much more controversial area, but that's where I started. Then I moved into different river, working on mostly river issues, river sharing issues, river water management issue, how water can cause conflict and water can cause cooperation, those kind of issues, but mostly in the transboundary level. Mm, that's very interesting. And, and I want to say here that, you know, the water issues are not just an international problem. I mean, if we look at, you know, the state of California and sort of the water sharing agreements between the different states, you know, that tends to also cause internal state conflict in the United States anyway. So this is not something that's just uh, isolated outside the United States or anywhere else, but it is really worldwide. But I think it, it, it's, it's, of course, everywhere, as you mentioned. Uh, I mean, uh, 
Uh, if you remember, there was a, somebody called Ronald Reagan, who was the president uh, some time back. Uh, when he was the California's governor, he was even prepared to wage a war against Arizona over the water. But I think there is a, there is a difference in there in the U.S. or the country like when we are talking about uh, India, because uh, still the, when there is a, the, the highest court, when the people go to the when they go to the court, court system gives an judgment, then the people accept it or the states accept it, or somehow they try to find ways to legally or um, uh, negotiation basis try to find a solution. But that doesn't happen in many parts, particularly in the those kind of provincial or the conflicts or the different regional conflicts which takes place in the South, countries in the South, because the legal institutions and the political institutions are weaker, then the conflict becomes more violent rather than being transformed into a negotiated settlement. Yeah, that's quite interesting. It's interesting how just one issue on, say, the water resources ties into the rest of society in terms of delivery justice and justice mechanisms, and then also, um, you know, legal reforms and everything. And you mentioned something that was really interesting about the migration, you know, water insecurity or instability leading to migration. And I guess maybe we ought to start maybe at a sort of 30,000 foot view here before we dive into some maybe more specific details. But when you're looking across this landscape now uh, here in 2022, what are some of the things that you're seeing that that cause concern for you uh, since you're an expert in this field in particular? You, you see, the, when uh, we started, or I started looking at the uh, water issue, uh, particularly the water scarcity and how it will lead to uh, weather conflict or cooperation in the early 90s, the most of the discussion was that the, the water war was the idea. You know, the countries will fight over the water. And if you look at it, there have been the, the CIA had brought out a report in the 80s saying there are 10 places which are hotspots called the hotspots where the wars could take place over the water. And most of them are the Middle East and North Africa. Then at that time when, as, as I mentioned, the idea was moving from the superpower rivalry to the finding new areas of conflict so and the population growth new economic ideas the resource scarcity all these things were leading to this idea of the water war uh, and also even the if you remember there was a secretary even secretary general butros butros gali even making a statement there is a water war though he was from egypt so though those kind of works came in the 90s quite a lot. Then by late 90s, uh, of uh, you know, there have been research came, uh, findings came that many countries are signing agreement over this water. They found that there are a lot, in the last 200 years, at least 600 agreements have been signed. Then even the countries which we were thinking of uh, going for the war over the water, particularly in Mekong, or in the Ganges, of course, there was Indus had a agreement since the 1960s. Or the Jordan River system, or even Nile. Nile was considered the most uh, problematic. We can come back to Nile whenever we want. But that time in the 99, there was a Nile Basin initiative was signed. So all these things, when the agreements were signed, and the statistically they saw that the historically these have been the agreements. So then it suddenly the uh, uh, the literature or the public discourse or the policy discourse went to the water piece. And there is a con because uh, you know uh, I I always say that the the water professionals usually use the word security, peace, conflicts very liberally. I mean, um, I am also my other hat as being a peace and conflict researcher. I I, I always find it a bit uh, challenging how to you know bring them together because there are different definitions of it. But anyway, that has happened. What coming back to your question, what has changed now that uh, because the climate change has brought a big dynamic uh, in this. Uh, that is, I, I, I call it uh, climate change and change in power politics also. What happened, if you look at it, says after the end of the Cold War, there was no, because most of the conflict takes place when the upper riparian countries build a dam, okay? And then they try to build a dam and divert the water. That's usually the conflict takes place. In the, in, at the time of the Cold War, uh, if you don't give me, or the U.S. or Germany or anyone, the West didn't give the country money, the leaders could go to Soviet Union and get the money. 
So they have done that. You know, we have we done that. It happens. Um, several dams in uh, India they did it. Several dams in Egypt, the big one was done by the same way. So, but after the end of the Cold War, there was no other financing system except going to the World Bank to get the money. And the World Bank had a very clear uh, operational directive that if you don't have an agreement, then you won't able to get the money. So, so it really stopped making many countries to stop building dams. I mean, Ethiopia was stopped for several years till 2011-12 when they made the money, got the money from them by themselves. Uh, but that only three countries built big, these big dams that time on their own money. China, three God's project, um, the uh, South and East Anatolia, the Gap project by Turkey, and India's Normana project. But those are the big countries that could generate resources from themselves. So that's what, and now Ethiopia has done it. But most of the dams were almost that time controlled through the World Bank financing. But that has changed now. Climate change has brought now the change. Um, because there has, you know, we, we are not sure. It's not about the actual availability of water or scarcity of water. It's also uncertainty over the water supply. What will happen? What is going to happen if there is a long-term drought period? Whether we will have that water available? Uh, for, you know, how the allocation will be made? Or if the agreements have been signed before, because those are only for for short term, if there is a one-year or two-year bad year, but if it becomes longer as climate change projects, then we'll have a problem. And then this, uh, the new financing financer like China have come in. China is providing money to a large number of countries to build the dams and doesn't have the same requirements like the World Bank had put. So I think in these two cases, what we are seeing that uh, there is a lot of uh, tension have come in, though the I will, if you, I mean, if you want, if you have time, I will discuss about the Ukraine, how Ukraine, the conflict in Ukraine or crisis in Ukraine or war in Ukraine, whatever the way you want to put it, all these things have really started for the water research or water peace or water conflict research to rethink uh, what are the ideas we had. Uh, but I think the climate change and change in power game has, or power politics, global power politics by and financing mechanism has really, uh, those two things have made it much more complicated now. And uh, again, you could hear the water war discussions coming in. Because it's also interesting to hear how things have transitioned over time. And so it's often very rare that we get to be able to sort of assess over a long period of time how we, as you mentioned, sort of changed from water wars and, you know, resource scarcity and now have moved into a, a position of, really uncertainty about where the the resources will come from overall, uh, which could change the, the sort of landscape that we're looking at from a security perspective and, and what that means. Because even if these agreements are in place, there's no guarantee that those uh, reservoirs and those resources will remain in place due to climate change and, and you know, so the, the environmental aspects. Absolutely. And so if we were going to look at this a bit more, so it, if we're talking now about uncertainty and we're talking about the fact that we really don't know where, you know, just theorizing and summarizing, but if we really don't know where the, the water supplies will come from in the future and where, you know, what the, the impact will be in terms of groundwater supply for our, our populations and our communities, what are some of the things that we're dealing with now to be able to look at? What are the discussions that, that communities and governments are having with, along these lines now? Uh, I think there have been for a longer period of time uh, discussions of how to desalinize the water. I mean, desalinization is a big part of this strategy to get uh, out of the water scarcity. Uh, the the issue is that uh, you know uh, again uh, some a president called John F. Kennedy when he had uh, asked the scientist, American scientist, go to moon. And the two second thing was that the desalinized, the, desalinized the water. The, I mean, the, you went to the moon, but we couldn't really, I mean, we are desalinizing the water, but it's still expensive, expensive. Of course, uh, if you have the resources, some of the rich countries, or you have the, the cheap 
energy resources like some of the Gulf countries. You can do it, but those are mostly for the drinking water and some kind of industrial use. But uh, for the irrigation purposes, it is still extremely expensive to do this. Though there have been technology has been being developed gradually or even using the solar and other renewable energy to do it, but I think it is still very, very, very long way to go. But that is one of the things. The other thing which has been to dive to, but this is a very old plan of how to transport the water. But that is very much problematic, like this kind of grand scheme of diverting the water from the Alaska to Mexico or California or Siberia to Central Asia or even now from Turkey to Gulf. So those are the grand schemes, which, or even China, but within the country, yes, China is diverting the water from south to north. Indians have been planning to connect all their rivers uh, from, I don't know, for how many years, but it's come, uh, or how many decades. So these are the things which are planned. Some of them are planned, some of them are internally being done. But they, that will be politically very difficult things to go, you know, to divert the water, uh, to take the water across different political boundaries, and that will create an, not only economically, not only environmentally, not only ecologically, but also much more politically will be much more complicated. I think that the, the but then I, we come to the groundwater. Groundwater is, is something which being always used. I mean, it's groundwater has been because 97% of the world's fresh water is groundwater. And the, for, uh, the thing is that because we don't see this, because it's not our, we don't talk about it. It's not part of the political discourse. It's not, of the, it's not very, you know, you won't see here about in policy or in politics. Those don't matter. So that doesn't, but it is actually a huge resource and being extracted in a, in a humongous scale uh, gradually. And it is the amount of uh, groundwater we are extracting. It is also contributing to the sea level rise. So it, it, it has that kind of implications. What is happening now? I think again, the uh, why recently I wrote something that why we, we should be worried about groundwater, how we manage it, because as I was mentioning, there are the, we, we all talk about the international rivers or the transboundary rivers, but there are three hundred ten transboundary rivers, and we, as I mentioning in the last two hundred years, probably we have six hundred agreements, and then we, there are much many more agreements before that. But if you look at it, there are at least 592 transboundary groundwater systems shared by 145 countries or more. But there are only six binding agreements. There is only six out of 592. And what before, we couldn't see those water. But now, the satellite technology, the image, uh, imagery, it has brought into quite a number of ways that we can really locate where the waters are. Of course, the it doesn't work the same way that uh, downstream, upstream, uh, like river system, because it's very interconnected. It's also very difficult to see how the pollution takes place or how to. So it's it's not that easy yet, but still we have the science is developing in much faster way that the people, politicians, and the, are much more now will be aware of this groundwater and of how they are being affected by other parties. So I think that is, that is something we, the world needs to put attention to it. Uh, and I think this is because the water scarcity uh, is, is uh, somehow, if it doesn't lead to conflict or war or direct military violence, even if it doesn't, it has a huge, huge impact on the human health, human security, economic growth, all these things which creates political instability, political insecurity. And then you mentioned about migration. I mean, this is the migration, uh, water and migration is quite interrelated. I mean, there has been, uh, as I was mentioning to you, I started even doing this, my postdoctoral research in the early 90s on water migration. Recently, World Bank brought out two very good studies on the water and migration. And I think it's it it's really brings out quite a number of interesting facts, which were uh, we all knew, but it's very difficult to really put. I think this has been put in black and white. That what happens, we usually think the poorest people will migrate. It's not. Or the poorer countries, people. It's a, what is happening in the, because they try to, in the when the water scarcity is taking place, uh, the, their studies, uh, actually a student of mine is also doing the uh, study similarly in the comparing Egypt and um, 
Iraq now. Uh, because when the country, if the country is poor or the people are poor, they will not able to, they will get into this uh, poverty trap with the water getting, and they don't have the, neither have the skill nor have the resources to migrate to other areas. The, many of these people, those who will be, are migrating or will be migrating, and that's I even noticed in the Bangladesh case in the 19, early 90s, that the people, those who will migrate, those who have resources, those who have some skills, so they will migrate. So there is a certain number of people will leave, those who are trained, those who can possibly, or those who are, those who are poor, they will become much poorer. So it's a, it's a very difficult scenario, politically, economically, socially, and humanly taking place. Yes, it definitely is. And when we're talking about the groundwater and and sort of these agreements and and legal frameworks that are or need to be developed, it's interesting to think in the way that we're looking at you know above ground water sources, you know lakes, rivers, streams, things like that. And then you mentioned pollution, and so you can obviously say, okay, if you're upstream and polluting, then it's noticeable downstream. But in the groundwater case, if I understand you correctly, it's really difficult to tell where that could be possibly coming from leading to further questions and, and sort of accusations and, and greater instability because you don't know who was polluting the groundwater supply, but we know that it is polluted, for example. That's right. That's right. And uh, and that provides quite a, uh, unlike river, uh, you need to build dams, you have a control system, you can uh, um, somehow manage that. But the groundwater, anyone can just draw the water wherever putting all kinds of systems. But the problem is most of the water, if you go below 10 to 15 meters, then the water quality drops also quite heavily. So it's not the infinite resources that you can bring it. Um, so it's, and so and all kinds of health issues comes with it. And you know there are there are a number of other factors which are in, involved. And the only if you are richer, you are relatively more well off, then you can you can draw the water for poorer people will not able to get it. So so there are a number of in, uh, impacts which the groundwater will have or the groundwater both at the local level and also if you are sharing different provinces or different urban and rural areas and many of the urban centers. Uh, I mean, we know Mexico City, what is happening. We also, you know, the issue is very much, much more in the California, as you have talked about before, you know, you see. And then the cities like uh, Shanghai or Delhi, you, you name it, they are they are actually sinking to some because of underground water extractions. And we, we saw that what has happened in Bangalore or in the South Africa, number of cities are having that serious problem because of the mm. ground, extreme groundwater extractions really creating problems there. And so contextually, what does that mean when we're saying extreme groundwater extraction? So you mentioned, uh, you know, Delhi and you mentioned, you know, Mexico City. For those who don't know, what's happening in those cities? You see, if if you if you take the because either the when you draw too much of water from the place, the water quality drops. Then the people, those who are actually taking the water using their own pumps or the electrical pumps or whatever they use tubes, but that has to go down much more. Then you know, then you need more energy. If the water dries out. Then there is no groundwater, so there is no water. I mean, there are the like you you have to get the water from outside to support these millions of people living in that area. Uh, so that, those are the problems which are coming. Of course, to our unplanned um, or uh, you know ninety five percent urban population growth taking place in the uh, countries in the developing countries. So those are not properly planned. The the reverses or the natural water systems are not exactly sufficiently working. And then the land is also going down because of the once you take a lot of water, the many of the places where the you will see that the land level is going down as well. So that, I mean, it, it, it's, it, will, it is creating all kinds of problems. But the main problem is water scarcity. It will put millions of people at the mercy of getting the water from outside, not they not having their own source of water for themselves. So, has there been an example of a city that's gone through this process that we could possibly learn from? I think the, the, those these are, as I mentioned, the cities which are like Shanghai mm. uh, or Mexico City or Bangalore or even Delhi. 
those are the cities which are actually those the water reduction ground water reductions has be, have become a serious issue um of course you know so it did the groundwater some of the groundwater gets re- replaced with the rainfall or the uh, rivers becoming coming uh, um, nearby rivers getting the water and then the groundwater get filled up uh, there are other alternative arrangements they are making but i think it is it there is uh, uh, there is nothing that we can see that any city has now almost uh, disappeared because of the water but there are a number of problems which big cities are having i mean there are a number of small cities are having problems but we we on we know about this uh, mega metropolis city mega metropolis then there are those who are having this kind of serious problems and water is creating also unrest uh, you will see a number of what urban water riots taking place in central america to uh, there have been uh, is a very common in parts of africa as well as south asia those are very or, or the why these urban ri- water riots taking place because urban water riots taking place either they there have been the uh, countries or the uh, authorities are not able to supply the water or water prices have gone quite high the water mafias are creating a number of problems and water is also being politicized There's several countries where the political leaders giving subsidies to water without realizing that how without focusing on the water management i'm not saying that water should not be subsidized to the poor people but i think we need to realize that water subsidies need to go to the people who whom we should go to rather than water subsidy is being used for the um, not properly water or the you know, proper use of the water so i think we that, that that's that's the difference there yeah that's interesting and it's a nice sort of segue as we start talking about the conflict side of this equation and so when we have water as a commodity that may obviously run low in terms of resourcing and then like you said it's politicized it can lead to you know price controls or rationing or you know different impacts across the populations whether they have the ability and you know to to find different sources or the economic you know ability to find different sources of water or the more impoverished parts of the community all of this sort of leads up into you know a greater instability in the communities and possibly between nations and things like that and so what are the some of the things that we start to see you kind of mentioned the rationing the subsidizing and then even sort of you know, urban riots to a certain extent about water resources. What do we start to see in terms of the communities, in terms of, you know, greater instability? You see, the, uh, uh, look at the situations which is happening uh, in the discussions when Syrian crisis took place. And uh, m- many of the commentators com- commented that or the, uh, said that time or now continue to say that because of the long period of drought, led to those kind of uh, crisis uh, of the agricultural crisis food crisis in the country and that really led to this kind of uh, uh, civil war which we witnessed or civil uh, war international intervention you name it you know we all saw that we saw everything in the syria the question comes why it happened in syria why it didn't happen in jordan because both the countries went through that kind of drought and now there is another drought in that region has come in again syria is going through for the last couple of years but that time when the drought took place before this um, unrest syria went uh, witnessed it but not jordan so i think it's it's a somehow i'm not glorifying the political system in jordan but i think we need to look at it what kind of society what kind of political system exists how the what are the international parts playing into it and how that really reflect in this water scarcity creating this kind of crisis there is always there will be a environmental crisis or water crisis or the you know resource natural resource crisis or even economic crisis but it also depends on what kind of social and political strength we have to address those and i think that's get clearly reflected in that crisis then what happens why because what why we are we need to really look at it in a you know different country on different society wise because if there is a drought or there is a flood heavy because there is a massive flood took place in 2010 in pakistan uh, 
a massive flood. Uh, what happened after that flood that uh, you, know, you, you will see in several areas, and the, the religious or the uh, religious or ultra-religious Islamist organizations took charge and uh, provided relief and those kind of things uh, because the state really could uh, was not present or state didn't have the means to really provide the support when it's needed. So if that situation comes in, you the state delegitimizes itself, whereas you bring in those kind of actors whom we, no one wants to be. I mean, no civilized world wants to, or civilized democratic world wants to be to take that those kind of role. So I think that the water scarcity or even water plentifulness in the flood crisis areas, flood time areas, will bring in the or delegitimize the state, which we want the state to have the legitimacy, but also to give these kind of actors or the, those who are not believing in. Uh, certain kind of ideology which is not good for peace, security, development, in uh, not only in that region, also globally. So I think we, we do see that there is a, when the state is weak or state institutions are weak, then we will see there is a number of direct conflict, as I was mentioning, in uh, we, we talking about the Syria or Jordan. But also we have seen that when the state really hasn't got the possibility to enter into this too because of the water scarcity or the loses legitimacy while the other actors come in. I think that's really challenging in terms of that resource scarcity, though, because the legitimacy of the state is also more sort of, you know, abstractly speaking, is, is responsible for the delivery of the security to the, the population and the communities. And so being able to do that means it is inherently dependent on the fact that you have water to deliver. And so this is you know, really quite interesting in terms of a debate because the fact that a lot of the things in terms of services provided to the community, to the people, are largely within the remit of the state to be able to deliver. So administration, government administration, land use, all these kind of things are within a rational amount of control. But if you lose a commodity like water in your community and you don't have the ability to really quickly bring more to bear, that that's quite substantial uh, loss in confidence in, in the government and the administration. Exactly. And also, if you have a state which has the power to, or the, thinks that it has the military power or the political power to get the water somehow to the people to gain that legitimacy, then I, we can discuss this, what is happening in the Crimean Canal. Uh, if you look at the canal in Crimea, which has been built since uh, Soviet uh, time. Uh, it was, I mean, the plans were gone, was almost 50s, 60s, but it started operating in 1975. The water was coming uh, to Crimea from the, uh, it was a Soviet era a miracle, as you can say. I mean, uh, so they, they were getting the water that time, but 85% of water was used for irrigation purposes in Crimea. What happened when um, uh, Russian President Putin went into Crimea, annexed it, in, and then uh, since 2014, the um, water has been, canal water has been stopped by Ukrainian authorities. Because, of course, Ukrainian authorities say that uh, Russians uh, controlled Crimea, didn't pay them the money because of the, but I think uh, there is another thing that Russia thinks that it has been Russia even way has uh, recently had gone to European Human Rights Court uh, to complain. I mean, there have been several places they have been complaining. They have been doing this. We all know that that has been a major areas of contention. Um, though we don't didn't talk much about it. That, but I think it is extremely important part where the Russian leadership was upset or angry or not very happy about the Ukraine for the last six, seven years. That What that led to, because that led to uh, Russia spam, um, putting a lot of resources, uh, subsidizing agriculture, bringing water through the, uh, to save, um, get the people in Crimea. So I think one of the legit, because the, to keep the Crimea under the Russia, to gain that legitimacy, you, you see that the, it was one of the uh, the Russian attack on the dam, which was stopping the water to Crimea, 
was the first thing after the when the war started. So so it is it is somehow the leaders will be also by use of non-legal illegal force or you know uh, unconstitutional authorities. I mean this is a very straightforward case which has happened. Uh, that is happening in all over that the countries uh, when they are sharing the water uh, in many cases uh, uh, using like take for example India is trying to stop the water I mean there has been all saying that the, since 1960 they have signed the agreement on Indus but they say we will stop the water because there is a water scarcity in our places. Uh, of course, it hasn't happened yet, but those kind of threats are coming. Uh, Egypt is threatening to bomb the dams, uh, you know, or the, all the options open on the when the Ethiopia is building the dams. So, this, why these things? Because it is to ensure the water supply to their people, uh, and that that's where they think that it will will give them the legitimacy. So, so, legitimacy is an issue which is, I think, is working in many many different contexts. In, in the context of water um, and uh, how you really use the water, how you distribute, uh, uh, supply the water, how you manage the water, and who gets how much of water, and how you really can get the water from other countries and other sources. All these factors which contributes the legitimacy or delegitimacy of the state and its leadership. And I, I looked at a number of stories with regards to Crimea, and I used that example also in, in some presentations I did for, for some centers of excellence and things like that in terms of conflict and, and climate-driven conflict. And it's interesting to look at the different sides of this perspective on the same issue. And and so, you know, the illegal annexation of Crimea, and then, you know, on one side you have one nation saying that the water was cut off. Yeah, on the other side you have a, a nation that's basically saying that well, you know, that there was an illegal annexation of this portion of land. And then there was a, what was typically agricultural area and tourist area has now been turned into a military industrial complex and therefore raised the water requirements. And then also a massive population adjustment occurred as well in terms of bringing in a lot of more people that were beyond the scope of what was uh, originally planned in terms of water quantity and, and quality for that, that population to begin with. So exceeding the population growth, and then changing the the industrial base uh, led to water shortages, right? Um, yeah. So there, there's always sort of two stories that go with that, but it, you're absolutely right. What was the first thing that one of the first things that was targeted was the actual the dams that were holding back water. You said that, I mean, in any conflict, there will be two sides of story, if not more. Mm -hmm. uh, there is there is always there. And I think I mean, there is no way anyone can justify what is happening or what has happened. But we are just looking at it, the uh, how water has been um, somehow uh, in the in the mindset of the Russian leadership that because of the lack of water, it is losing legitimacy or it has to do something for Crimean people to justify its annexation, and that's what. Uh, is 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 reflected that the first thing after the it's a, you know military intervention in Ukraine it went against the dam and to provide the water to gain the support so the water being used as a symbolic way also that to show that this is how uh, the intervention was so I, because I think it, that's what makes it I, I, in the beginning when I was talking that it is it really creates that always it's water, whether the water can cause the war or what. I mean, there has been always this discussion that water either is used in a war while war is taking place uh, or water systems are being targeted in a war time. But whether water can cause the war or not, there has been that there has never you know we have said that there is no or at least the researchers have keep on saying that water hasn't caused the war yet what this ukraine crisis has brought in the past two two things which were quite because as you can see russian military advancement or military interventions targeting the water facilities 
and the energy power facilities. And that's too, you will see many of the cities where they are either water rationing or they don't have supply of hot water, even the fresh water. And that is usually in the war times, adversaries, uh, you know, uh, are not supposed to do. That's a gradual international norms are there that you are not supposed to do, but not many do really follow that. And that's what actually Russia is doing quite blatantly of targeting those water facilities which supply. Then we saw that in the while uh, both uh, in the Irpin River and the Naipur River, which are both close to the northwest cave, uh, which is the water. Because we have seen uh, from the Second World War to Korean War to Vietnam War or even you know, my recent Balkan war, or even India-Pakistan war, the water when being can be used to stop the advancement of the armed forces because we either use the canal or whatever, the river dams or whatever. But here we see that the flood plains of the northwest part of the Kiev area is, we can satellite image shows that that has been. Uh, nobody says how it has happened, but of course somebody has either, you know, either Russians have bombed the dam, which doesn't look so, but somebody might have opened the gates, then the water has been flooded. And that those are the things which have happened in the past, and that is nothing surprised to me. But the real question comes now, or the real challenge comes now, for the water researchers, those who are talking about water and peace, and water has never caused the war, how to place this Crimean canal issue into this conflict? Because, yes, nobody, I mean, saying that because of the Ukraine had stopped the dam, that the Putin decided to intervene or the in, in or to, took his army to Ukraine. And that's for what it did, is there any particular reason in any war we can find to say that because of this reason, the country invaded the other country? There are two ways, there are two things which you can clearly say that, look, a country invades another country, either for territory, like the, like the one which Putin did in 2014 to take the part of the territory. That's Crimean territory. Okay, that's a real... Or you intervene in other countries like U.S. did in Afghanistan or Iraq to change the regime. So that's another way of intervention. But those are the very clean, clear-cut things. I mean, either you are changing the regime or you are occupying certain part of the territory. But when it comes, why you really change the regime? Why you really occupy that territory? Those are always complicated subjects. And those can be bring out a number of complications that what exactly, you know, you ask anyone, anyone has a, everyone has a different opinion about it. Uh, why the intervention took place, not only Ukraine, any intervention, any war you ask, everyone has a different opinion. So in this case, there is certain people will also, or, you know, there will, that the Crimean water crisis will be. So I think that's what I'm saying. In the beginning, I said, this Crimean or the, sorry, the Ukrainian crisis or Ukrainian war has really brought different dimensions how the water can be connected in three different ways to the conflict or war. And I think to add to that, though, so when we talk about the specifically in Crimea and then gaining access to water to legitimize the Russian Federation and the government in Crimea since they took it over and that illegal annexation. But it's also used conversely as a mechanism to delegitimize the Ukrainian government in that aspect, right? So because they're not providing water, therefore they are not as legitimate as they should be. And then that is one of the contributing factors amongst many, many other sort of cases they were making to build up into a, a conflict that we now see today that's occurring in Ukraine. So I, I think it can really go in, in both of those directions as well, right? So it's a mechanism, it's a tool, and because somebody is doing this, well, you know, they control it, they want to deny you access, they want to deny your own sort of human rights towards water, and so therefore they are not a legitimate government that should be followed. That was clearly done also in the eastern areas, where the Russia controlled eastern areas. So the water crisis have been reported, being reported for several years now. And that they were Russian campaign or propaganda, whatever you want to say, that has been always targeting that the Ukrainians are creating problem because that's water is not reaching. So it is not only Crimea, but also in the eastern side, Russian um, controlled or the Russian proxy controlled areas where at that time 
were also blaming um, the Ukraine, and that's delegitimizing, as you are saying, also for the and blaming it on the Ukraine. That's because that's a, that's a very easy way of blaming a country that goes to. You see, there is a in um, uh, India uh, had this East Pakistan and West Pakistan. East Pakistan became Bangladesh. But before that, West Pakistan was sharing with the Indus, whereas uh, India was sharing with the East Pakistan Ganges. They signed an agreement in 1960 on Indus. That time, East Pakistan was East Pakistan, but didn't sign the agreement with the Ganges. So you ask this question that why they did it, why they didn't sign here, you will get the very different explanations to from why people they didn't do it. One is probably the the Indian explanation is the West Pakistanis didn't really put the emphasis on the Ganges because they were much more wanted the Indus, whereas the Pakistan explanation is that. India wanted to show to the East Pakistanis that the West Pakistan is not interested in your issue. So then they were trying to delegitimize them. So it's, a, it's, a, it's always this kind of politicization of how and this water management, water sharing takes place and uh, blaming other countries uh, because then you can really use that, that you can take your blame from yours and get your own legitimacy. But also... You know, you, if you if you can also just try to stop that giving the water to other countries and keep for yourself that like us now. I mean, the kind of thing which is happening in Ethiopia, the Ethiopian president, uh, prime minister, sorry, Ethiopian prime minister Abe, he, he was going through a serious internal crisis in the because in Tigray and others. But the, uh, by building that big dam in the Great Grand Ethiopian Ronasa Dam has given him a huge political uh, legitimacy in the country or at least among his supporters. So there is always this, uh, those kind of things provides that kind of political legitimacy or delegitimize yourself. Hmm. That's really interesting. It seems simple on the surface, right? But it can be extremely complex to try and resolve. If we were to, to put you in the shoes of, and let me give some context to this. I was part of some recent discussions and, and, there's the overall sort of assessment that, you know, at one period in time, we, we were talking about mega cities and sort of major urban development areas. And that seems to have shifted slightly in terms of growth is now for future civilian populations is more towards medium type cities. So the, the, the large sprawling urban cities are a thing, but growth in the future is going to be more into these medium sized communities and cities themselves. And so there's some numbers behind it. I just don't happen to recall right at the moment. But the the idea being here that, you know, from your view, if you're looking at these and you're in one of these medium-sized growing communities and you're looking at this from the lens of water uh, resourcing and water security, what are some of the things that you would be thinking about uh, in terms of that? Would you be looking at, for example, groundwater supplies, uh, above water supplies? Like what are some of the things that you would be thinking about in terms of this type of growing community? It depends on what kind of country is this. I mean, the country and its own, uh, you know, depending on also the climatic zones, you need to be careful whether, where you want to place it. But I think uh, there will be no such, uh, I don't think you should ask the academics to give you one golden principle. There is no golden principle in our, 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 uh, our way of thinking. But I think what happens, I think we, you need to be very careful in a long-term basis how the water supply will be ascertained in a, in a way that it will not go away or it will not dry up. Or so, because I think you, you, at least you need to think hundreds of years in, in future. Like uh, Otherwise, if you think that at present we will be putting probably this many, you know, a million people and this much of water, so, cities will grow or the cities there is a tendency that some cities will surely grow so i think it is a it's a long-term perspective you need to keep it groundwater is a very important part of it uh, because uh, groundwater is mostly in 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 somehow doesn't really uh, uh, depend on um, by or the independent upon others whims because if you are dependent on river water or something because there is something might happen in the upstream 
that will create problem for you to get the water supply or a pollution or whatever. But groundwater, in 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 general cases, to some extent, at least you have that kind of possibility how you can manage it and how you can really uh, retain it, its quality and other thing. The third thing I think is is that even if you don't have the fresh water supply. Uh, or you are out outfall, you should be quite close to a, a salt water areas too. I mean the sea water and other. The reason is because if the urban centers, you are mostly needing the water for your drinking purposes and some industrial purposes. You are not doing it, needing water for irrigation purposes. And if you, if it is a relatively a, you know a richer country or a medium size richer country, then it will be possible for the uh, desalinize the water uh, we, we using um, gradually there are a number of new sustainable uh, ways of uh, desalinizing it gradually will happen so i think at least you should have uh, the f- the first thing is a proper groundwater uh, area that you will be able to retain it for some period of time there are, it is good that if you have any fresh water supply on the surface of fresh water supply which is uh, relatively reliable but if not at least you should be close to a sea uh, that where you can um, do the desalination uh, by transferring the water because several countries where there are several cities like uh, take for example singapore gets the water i used to advise uh, singapore government because it came into crisis with the malaysia they used to get the fresh water from malaysia clean it and they use it and then divert it to malaysia again uh, that became quite conflictual. It's still continuing because this agreement was signed when the British Times and still continuing. But it, it, it has become a number of times, at least in the uh, 20 years back, it was uh, almost both the countries are going to International Court of Justice. The similar agreement comes in Hong Kong, but mainland, but that's part of a country system. But you, you, you will be, if you are dependent on this kind of external water supply through pipe warp, you know, uh, the and particularly from another country, then you are at their mercy and they can either abruptly end the agreement or you can, uh, you know, raise the price, all kinds of things you will be uh, subjected to. So I think I, I, I strongly advise either you if, if, uh, never do that, but if you have to do that, you must have a secondary source to bring the water back uh, to having some kind of uh, um, comparative advantage of uh, not being blackmailed. Okay, thank you very much. Well, so Dr. Swain, it's really interesting, uh, a really inter- uh, you know, it's a fascinating discussion in terms of how we need to be cognizant of, of the natural resources and what we're doing in terms of our cities and our communities and, and how that could actually lead and contribute to future instability and what that might look like. And unfortunately, I, seeing, I think we're seeing some of that you know, today in Ukraine and, and even other parts of the world, as you mentioned, in, in many different formats and forms and functions. So thank you very much for joining us today. Where can people find you if they would like to contact you? I mean, my either as a web official because my department has a website, I'm there, but I'm, I'm quite active in the uh, Twitter. My, you know, uh, it's at uh, Asosway, uh, uh, A-S-H-O-S-W-A-I. So... And I have a quite a good Twitter follower, so that's I'm quite okay with. The, but other, I mean, I'm in the Facebook, uh, uh, Instagram, and also in LinkedIn, but um, more in the Twitter rather than other things. So, and Google it. That's that's the one thing. <laughs> okay, great. We'll make sure and we'll put those links in the show notes as well, so everybody can take a look there. So, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us, and uh, really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure talking to you. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at tiems.info, that's tiems.info, and also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about? Or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at capacitybuildingint.com and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.